Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to the Great Obsession Podcast. I'm Riley, and I'm drinking a pumpkin hot chocolate today. Ooh, I don't think I've ever had pumpkin hot chocolate. Good for you. So seasonal. I know. I'm really leaning into my fall vibes here. It's hot outside, so I shouldn't be drinking hot chocolate, but I had to. I just had to. You gotta embrace the season. Um, I'm Sam. I am drinking just a plain hot latte. And mm. it's just keeping me keeping me cozy on this rainy morning. No sweetness today, just coffee and milk. No, no sweetness because yesterday I went to a like coffee flight tasting thing that was all Halloween themed drinks. And my only critique was that every single one of them was like peak sweetness. And they were all mm-hmm. different flavors, and it was super tasty, super fun, but I, like, need it. Like, I need, like, a sweet break. It was a real... Yeah, was I can imagine. Heavy, sweet experience, but 10 of 10. Love it. Okay, today we're so excited. We're talking about The Ballad of Never After by Stephanie Garber. Um, real quick, I want to say if you noticed that we skipped a week and didn't post an episode last week, no, you didn't. <laughs> It didn't happen. We're moving on. It's all an illusion. <laughs> as far as you know, we've been super consistent with this podcast and we're perfect and we never make mistakes yep. or miss weeks. Yep. Anyway, this episode will contain spoilers for Once Upon a Broken Heart and The Ballad of Never After. However, at the time of recording, we have not read A Curse for True Love because it's not out yet. So all our spoilers will go through the end of The Ballad of Never After. So this book... Interestingly, because we kind of had a week break where life was really getting away from us, I had more time away from this book than I did from Once Upon a Broken Heart, which we talked about in our last episode. So I think when I have time away from books, my thoughts change. And in this Mm -hmm. case, I think they formulated to become a little bit, a little bit more critical than they were in Once Upon a Broken Heart. However... I'm still obsessed. So I'm really interested to hear your initial rating and like initial thoughts Mm -hmm. compared to mine. So tell me, you read it again, right? Yeah, yeah. So I read this for the first time almost exactly a year ago when it like first came out. And then I did a reread in maybe like a month ago. I want to say. Yeah, I think what I realized, because I do know what you mean, this book is so much fun to read and I just devoured it. Like I just sat there and could not put it down. I was giggling, kicking my legs just the whole time. But you do leave it a little bit and especially if you read other books, you kind of, some critiques do come up. But when I did Mm -hmm. my reread, I was like, you know what? There are critiques to be had, sure. But at the end of the day, this book for me is such a peak comfort read. It's mm-hmm. so fun and like warm and tropey. And, and I just, um, I think it's just like a real escapism read for me without the emotional weight of like most escapism fantasy. Um mm-hmm. And so for me, this is still an eight. This is pre to this discussion. I'm I'm at an eight for me. 
Okay, mine is just slightly lower. I feel like I'm at a seven. And it's just because I feel like similar to how I felt about Daisy Jones and the Six when you and mm-hmm. I talked about it. Um, that was like a big, uh, so, sort of like you said, like comfort read or like escapism read. Like it's, it was really easy for me to get super into the story, be surrounded by it, really easy to read. Um, but then at the end, thinking about like characters and arcs and the sort of stuff that I find compelling in books, I was like, hmm. Now, I didn't get a ton of that, but... You know, I, I was telling Sam off mic, I feel like this book and this series for me is kind of like a dessert. Like I just mm-hmm. devour it and it may not be super like intellectually stimulating the way that vegetables are super healthy and classic books are really intellectually stimulating. Dessert, on the other hand, really fun to eat, doesn't necessarily do a, a lot of good for you. And that's kind of how I felt <laughs> about this. Like so fun to read. Loved it. Um, really loved the way I felt after reading it. And I'm excited to talk about it. However, I don't think this is going to be, you know, a super intellectual discussion necessarily. <laughs> no, and I don't, I would agree. But I think my like minor pushback on that is are most of our books that we like read here intellectual discussions like I think we maybe can take them to an intellectual place but like I don't I don't I think about like in our conversation on once upon a broken heart like we had this whole conversation about like what is what is fate is fate something that we can control what is what does it mean to have a true love like what is a happily ever after and like sort of unpacking and pushing against like some of those like narratives and tropes and I think that takes it in an intellectual discussion but I think a lot of these books are not meant to be like that intellectually stimulating for us like that's not I don't think I could be wrong but I don't think Stephanie Garber sat out or sat down to write this book and was like I'm about to intellectually stimulate these young adults out here (laughs) like that was not the vibe and so I have no problem like it's not a it's a, not a negative to me that this is not like a super this isn't challenge this book doesn't challenge me um and that's not a problem for me because I didn't I didn't anticipate it to yeah like that maybe wasn't necessarily the author's intent yeah and the author's intent I think was just to create a really great slow burn and a really mm-hmm. fun magical world and I do think she accomplished that uh I guess what I'm thinking is, I, I think with some of the other books we read that are YA, like, I mean, I'm thinking of Six of Crows, for example, just because I, I loved that series. I feel like there was a lot of depth with those characters that we were really able to mm-hmm. get into. And I really think that's what takes a book to the next level for me. Like, that's what takes a great book from four stars to five stars mm-hmm. is when I can really feel like the characters are tangible and complex and engage in a discussion about that. I don't necessarily think that's what's going to happen here, but that's okay because, like you said, that's really not the purpose of this story. The purpose of the story is to be fun. Well, and I think I think that's a great point, talking about Six of Crows. Like, that's such a character-driven story. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about this on our previous episode, um, that even in the Caraval trilogy, like, the character depth... It's not, I don't think that's Stephanie Garber's, like, go-to, that's not the the type of author that she is, is, like, a character-driven author. Mm -hmm. 
she's a much more like a aesthetic driven author in if, that's mm-hmm. probably not the right terminology but that's all I've got right now for you um <laughs> and so I think her books to me read a little bit like watching a movie right you're really mm-hmm. seeing things happen but you're not necessarily emotionally feeling them in the same way that like in six of crows you are feeling the same emotion that they are that those characters are because you're so in their Mm -hmm. heads they're so distinct versus this we're not really feeling what evangeline is feeling like we're just watching her do things and having our own personal responses to that and so i think there's like a real difference in the type of storytelling. Um, but I, I, I totally get what you mean, that there is like a different, the character development is not as deep. It's it's not as complex. The plot is also not um, terribly complex. But this makes me wonder though, because I think you and I have both described us ourselves as character-driven readers. And I think going back to Daisy Jones and the Six, that was one of your critiques in that episode was that you were like this, I'm a character driven reader and this story didn't do it for me, but it did it for me myself because I loved the vibes. So is that maybe what you think makes this book? Honestly, maybe for you is the vibes. Maybe because yeah, I love the vibes. Subject matter. I love the, like the aesthetic, the clothes, the forest, the magic, like it's all super, Super fab for me. Jax is like like my peak fiction boy in the worst way. <laughs> That's like, what it is. He's like the I perfect love, broken boy. Yes, he's the perfect broken boy. He's like so broken and he's so mean. But then he's like so soft for her. But he's like trying to deny it. And I just love – what? how toxic of me, honestly. Good thing I'm already married because <laughs> really I'm packing some like toxic uh, – character um traits for myself but like i'm just so drawn to the idea of like a mean boy who's just like soft and protective for like one person um i think that's just a kryptonite for me and that's my big complaint with a lot of enemies to lovers quote unquote enemies to Mm -hmm. lovers is it's like like zayden and fourth wing yeah, he's, like, sort of got this opposition with Violet. But, like, you you know that he's a good guy. Like, we get all this mm-hmm. evidence that he's so loyal to his people. He's so protective. Like, he's really trying to do what he, think is the right, he thinks is the right thing. And, yes, that's kind of in opposition to Violet. But, like, he's not a true villain. Like, he's not a true enemy. I like <laughs> a guy who's, like, actively a villain. He's actually bad. And is actually yeah. just, like, the worst except when it comes to like this one person and that's maybe that maybe for me is like what makes up for the lack of character depth yeah okay i i see that because i also remember in fourth wing no spoilers for fourth wing by the way i'm gonna be super vague oh but sorry if uh, i spoiled Taryn is your favorite character in in uh i think you said he was your favorite character yeah, in fourth wing and he's very much like a angry at everyone but soft for one person yes type of character yeah what is it it's like the grumpy the grumpy sunshine oh no not not grumpy sunshine i guess because the 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 other person doesn't need to be like sunny but like grumpy soft is like what i need yeah 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 that is like and i 
that's like your your peak I know favorite trope <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> and you know it's kind of funny is I feel like in my like personal relationship I'm the grumpy one <laughs> so you see yourself in those people maybe honestly yeah maybe maybe wow how revealing wow, I love this that we're been. psychoanalyzing <laughs> ourselves instead of talking about this book let's talk about uh, Jax yes because I want to go through this book and talk about all of the individual characters because the plot is like not that interesting to talk about in my opinion it's, a, it's a very basic in yeah. this book yeah in this book the characters because this is a sequel we start to see the characters develop more or mm-hmm. we see them not develop when they should so that's where i think the interesting conversations are so jack's in this book there's a lot going on so there's mm-hmm. the apples thing which we can expand upon we talked about in our last episode there's more of his backstory but i really felt like in this book the jacks's main purpose was just to be the love interest who creates sexual tension with him and the lead and he did that my man's did that <laughs> however did that. we really did not get a lot more of his backstory and i guess i so that's another reason why i left the book feeling a little bit unsatisfied because i was like Jax was so mysterious in the first book he's mm-hmm. so mysterious the whole caraval trilogy and he is still so mysterious in this story like we we clearly see that he has a soft spot for evangeline and probably loves her but we don't really understand why he's like so angsty why he wants to open the valerie arch he says he doesn't want to open it actually but then we don't know what he actually wants so it's like what are his motivations these are all thoughts i'm having that's maybe a rhetorical question do you have any thoughts on like what his motivations might be yes so i think his motivations are kind of the same as evangeline's only like he's like twisted like he wants a true love and he can't have it Mm -hmm. and so that's why he wants to open the valerie arch is because he wants to go back in time to mm-hmm. Tella and oh, to Tella. and to oh, change what happened there because she's supposed to be his true love and it didn't work out. And so I that's think right. and that's like devastating to him and we're seeing like the after effects of that. And so that's like like when you put it in that context, like he's doing all of this scheming and all this like craziness just so he can go back and get his happily ever after, which we know Evangeline came to the magnificent north in pursuit of her happily ever after. So I think it's kind of interesting because they're pursuing the same thing ultimately. He's just obviously yeah, like true. a deeply twisted individual. Um, so I thought- He's been alive for a lot longer too. So he has a lot more to be jaded about. Yes, yes, for sure. And I thought that that was kind of interesting because then when he use, ultimately uses the stones to go back in time to save Ava- He's like choosing her over what he perceives as his happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And that was that was big for me. I was like, ah. um, and so I found that to be compelling. I wasn't I will say I wasn't as compelled by the idea of him going back to to Tella to like fix that situation yeah. because he doesn't even though he's like mysterious and guarded, I still think we probably could have 
maybe seen a bit more angst on his end directly related to Tella. And I think so that it was more clear of who she was to him and what he was feeling about her and how that fed into his motivations to going back in time. I think maybe Stephanie Garber got a little bit hamstrung on that because she wanted this trilogy to be independent of Caraval and you shouldn't have had mm-hmm. to read Caraval. And so I, I think she tried to do as minimal telecontent as she could so as not to spoil that trilogy. And so, and I think that created a little bit of disconnect because it does get sort of muddy and mm. lost as to why he's so motivated to open the arch. Um, and mm-hmm. he's not motivated to open the arch. He's motivated to combine the stones and opening the arch is just yeah. a side effect of that, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. And then as for his backstory, I felt like we, <laughs> I felt like I got a lot. I think he's still really? mysterious, but I felt like we got a decent amount because, like, we find out that he was one of the, like, he was, like, part of the Marywood Three or whatever, and he was friends with the Valors, mm-hmm. and he's been friends mm-hmm. with Lala for a long time, and that there was, like, a great tragedy that resulted in Chaos, whose real name I can't ever remember, is it Castor? Is I it think? Castor? So yeah, so he mm-hmm. dies and mm-hmm. in this whole Slaughterwood drama, he like ends up being killed. And do you know what I'm talking about when I say Slaughterwood drama? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. You looked a little confused. Which um, Slaughterwood, just side note, is such the, a funny The name The naming choices were a little <laughs> obvious in this story. A little bit on the nose. Vengeance Slaughterwood. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Um and so but he dies and so Honora who's like the mother of the Valors and this great healer brings him back to life because he's her son and in doing Mm -hmm. so turns him into a vampire and he goes on Mm -hmm. like this like rampage killing people which is why they put the helm on him Mm -hmm. and Jax is like a side witness to all of this. Like he's not present necessarily for all of it. He's just seeing all these people that he like loves and his family and all these people that he cares about just this like total destruction. And Mm -hmm. like they're all of their happily ever afters turning into nightmares, which I think is really interesting. I think says a lot about his relationship with chaos and Lala I think that's mm-hmm. and like opening the arch and like releasing the valors or whatever. I think that that's really, really compelling. And then I've seen a lot of theories as far as the ballad of the archer and the fox because we mm-hmm. find out that Jax is the archer. And I've seen some things where people are like, like, is like we don't know how the story ends. Jack says he killed the fox. Is the fox Evangeline? I mean, she's Evangeline Fox. Is it, Mm -hmm. is there like another time travel component taking place here where she was the original fox and just doesn't remember? Oh, she's like a, like a, almost like she's a fate or like reincarnated herself sort of thing. Um, particularly because her like childhood is like a little wishy-washy as far as her parents. Yeah. Just, like, 
both died and she's like like it's very cinderella-esque and she's like with the stepmother kind of thing and um Uh so some people have theories that like she is the original fox somehow and doesn't know it um that's interesting and i think that and so i think that we don't like we don't know how jacks becomes a fate we don't know i think that's what's missing for me and we don't know how well, we don't know how anyone becomes. That's what a fate, I was gonna I say. Think. Do we know how anyone becomes a fate? I think there's maybe something in Caraval that tells us how fates came into existence, but I don't remember. I don't um, remember and since Stephanie Garber is trying to keep those separate, I don't think. I think if the, there will be a, some kind of contextual reveal in this next book that has that's independent from Caraval. Um, mm-hmm. But that's my big question: is is he a fate and like how did he become who he is today i think i see emotionally how he became who he is today Mm -hmm. but the magical mechanics i think are a question mark for me but i felt Mm -hmm. like i got a lot of jack's backstory interestingly i felt differently I guess as you're saying that i'm like yeah okay i did get all this new information about him but what i guess I don't know is like most of it we didn't hear from him Mm -hmm. and so I don't really know how he was feeling about all of that and I also don't know what it means that he's the archer which I'm sure we're gonna find out in the next yeah yeah I don't think I think the archer was meant to be like a very vague sort of thing um I will say when when uh Evangeline was reading the like book of the portraits or whatever that magical book mm-hmm. and she found out about the Marywood three and finds out there's Castor, there's some other guy and then there's the archer uh, and it's and she sees a picture of three guys and one of them is Jax. I was immediately like oh Jax is the archer and I think that clued me in what clued me in was the apples because mm-hmm. apples are a big uh, archer imagery. Like in mm-hmm. old timey tales, archers love shooting apples off of people's heads. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so that was um, a big clue to me. But then it, it was like supposed to be this big reveal at the end when Evangeline finds out. And she's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you were the archer. And I was like, girl, how did you not figure this out? But also, what does it mean? I know. I don't know what it means. And I don't, and the, here's the thing that sort of hinges on this last book. Do we not know what it means because that's intentional and that's part of the Magnificent North and not knowing how the mm-hmm. stories end? And Stephanie Garber's sort of just creating this more long term sort of reveal, or are we going to finish a curse for true love and still be like, I don't know what that meant? I, I'm not sure. There's a book two created more loose ends than book one did Mm -hmm. and i am really optimistic that they'll all be tied up in a curse for true love but i think there's there is potential because there are so many loose ends that some things maybe get dropped we'll see i will Mm -hmm. say from what i because i'm like low-key obsessed with stephanie garber I don't know why. I just love her. I was going to say, I feel like you're a good source of knowledge, though, because you watch like all her interviews, right? You like listen to her on podcasts. Yes. You follow her really closely. I do. I do. So tell me if you have any like additional insight about 
what's going on over there? So the only sort of thinking that I have is, so she's talked before about her writing process and Mm -hmm. she is like a very heavy outliner writer. So she has Mm -hmm. all of these storylines planned out from book one all the way through book three and so she knows when she starts relatively like where she wants it to finish Mm -hmm. um which leads me to think that a lot of these loose ends are pretty intentional and will be resolved in the third book Um, Mm -hmm. she also I think this is actually really interesting to think about when you think about this book um she was originally her original contract for this series with the publisher was mm-hmm. for a two book series with an optional third so oh, interesting. when she wrote ballad of never after she intentionally had it on a big cliffhanger with multiple loose ends because if it did well and the fans demanded it, she would get a third book. And that was how she planned this series. Oh, so I do wow. think you really see that in this book that she did things to intentionally lead you as a reader to be like, I need the next one. Who like somebody give me the third mm-hmm. book. And I it was very successful for her obviously she's a curse for true mm-hmm. love is super highly anticipated um mm-hmm. but I think that that also is maybe plays a little bit of a role in why there are so many open ended questions at the end of this book and why it ends on such a cliffhanger because her previous books none of them ended on like major cliffhangers in the same way No, no, you're so right. That actually gives me a lot of more helpful insight because, I mean, that's like I know partly what her purpose was in writing this and Mm -hmm. it was to make us want more. And so I feel like in every aspect of the story, everything's a loose end. Like we really don't find out any information in this Mm -hmm. story that makes the first book like make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) So that makes me, I guess, less um, critical of, of like... Just because I, I sort of ended this book feeling unsatisfied with how little, mm. um, I guess, context Progress. or like how few loose ends were tied up at all. Because sometimes in se- in sequels, like you get some answers, but then you get new stuff added. Mm-hmm. And in this case, like all we got was more questions. But now that I know that, it's like, okay, slay. Like she did that. She did that on purpose. <laughs> now I have to see if she can successfully tie it all up in book three. Because mm-hmm. if she does, it'll be a 10 out of 10. Yeah, and I will say I knew before reading Ballad of Never After for the first time, I knew that she had written it as like part of this two-book contract aiming to get a third. So I did have that like pre-existing context when I read it. Okay. And so I do wonder if that didn't shade some of my interpretations because there was like moments where I remember reading and being like, ah, she's like really setting up for the next one, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think that that potentially shielded me from some of the critiques that you have. And I think – and mm-hmm. it's and it's interesting to think about and there's like probably a broader, more unrelated conversation about how much does this like behind-the-scenes author motivation – there's some like 
politicking negotiation happening mm-hmm. how much should that be taken into account when reviewing a book right and it and it's because it's like you read this without any of that context and as a result saw critiques but then when you like add yeah. in the background author context it makes you more like it makes those critiques like less potent i guess um yeah and i and i think there's no, maybe that's really true some interesting conversation to be had but yeah and we don't have to dive into no. it but i will say this is making me think of this is very similar to the way that i think of music when i'm um critiquing music in my own head to myself <laughs> is sometimes i listen to a song and i'm like now what the fuck was that about like this song makes no sense but then if i learn more context about like why it was written or when it was written or or if I listen to the whole album. Mm. A lot of times when you listen to an entire album, you get more context of a song. So like when I listened to Noah Khan's Stick Season, I was like, okay, banger, but I don't have that much to say other than it's a heartbreak song. And then I listened to the whole album, Stick Season, and was like, oh, now wait a second. Like we get a lot more context here and and now I understand what each individual song is contributing. And so it's like, I think it's that way with, pretty much all art is like, mm-hmm. how much do we need to take the context in which the art was created into account when we are criticizing, reviewing the art? I don't know, but it definitely adds to the conversation, I think. And that's For why sure. I like talking about this book with you. Cause you have a lot more context. I think there's some stuff we read where it's like, I haven't like watched a million Lee Bardugo interviews and neither have you. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. when we <laughs> talked about her stuff, we didn't have much to say about like why she wrote stuff, but maybe that would have created an interesting like a different conversation to be had. Yeah. No, and and I think now that I've gotten more into um just like author engagement, so whether it be author interviews or like going to panels or like signings and things like that and hearing authors talk about their own work and why they wrote it, why they made the choices that they did, I think it's really added a whole nother dimension to the reading that I think is super, super valuable. And just, yeah, it's kind of like with, like you said, with music, it can reframe your entire perspective of what you think about what you're consuming. And I think that that's just Mm -hmm. so fascinating. Love it. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And something that I hope if anyone's listening and has no, had no context, like I did hearing what, Sam knows about Stephanie Garber and why, what context she was writing this book within that, that um, maybe changes the way that you think about it. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> I will say I, I do have one, I think we have a very similar critique um, if we want to move into Evangeline um, yes. as a character. <laughs> like... There's so many points in this book where I'm like, girl, open your eyes. Like, read the room. Like, yeah. Like, the answers are so obvious. It's just, it feels so yeah. clear, so tangible. And then, like you said, she's suddenly, oh, my gosh, I'm so surprised. And you as the reader are like, girl, we dumb it, no. And I don't, yeah. like, she has so many moments like that where I'm like, you dumb, dumb. How have you not put this together? I think there's a certain element for me where it's like a little bit endearing. Like it's almost Mm -hmm. like a little silly. Um, But that is like she's 
almost so like optimistic and trusting to such a fault that it feels like very fake like it does not feel tangible it feels like a character of something and I don't know if there's like an intention behind that of because like there's so much in these books where Stephanie Garber is like pulling from fairy tale stereotypes and is really sort Mm -hmm. of massaging them and maneuvering them into new and fresh ways of understanding those fairy tale elements and so I don't know if Evangeline herself is supposed to be an archetype of you know a classic fairy tale princess right whatever like damsel in distress yeah, who type has of deal. no personality and is just there yeah. kind of ding 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 doing her thing and like why well, want my happily ever after blah 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 and mm-hmm. so I, I do think that's where it's coming from. I don't know if it's intentionally supposed to be so extreme, but I, I would agree. There are moments where I'm like, uh, she's a little bit of an eye roll for me. And it adds to, she feels very juvenile at points. Yeah, it does. It makes the book read really young because yes. of how like young Evangeline reads. So it's in my head, it was sort of this, conflicting feelings of like okay this is YA she's a she's like 16 years old so like of course she's gonna be dumb but then it's like well 16 year olds aren't dumb sure their brains aren't fully developed but like that that can't can't just chalk everything up to oh they're 16 they're stupid because that's not the case and if every 16 year old in every YA book was stupid I wouldn't like reading YA Mm -hmm. so there yeah there's something to be said about that and I wonder if that's just like maybe a weakness that Stephanie Garber has because I also felt like mm-hmm. Scarlett and Tella both were pretty one-dimensional and a little obnoxious in Caraval. And I feel like Evangeline is a, a little bit more enjoyable to read just because her inner dialogue doesn't, or sorry, her inner monologue, it doesn't annoy me. And she has really great banter with yes. Jax and sometimes with other characters. So I like that about her. But yeah, she's there's not a lot of character development happening here and she doesn't really feel like a tangible character to me yeah I would agree I am actually I was like kind of surprised that we didn't get more character development in this book and I think particularly because she has so many incidences where sort of this the same thing is happening like you made this note about like Marisol when she saves her oh my gosh yeah. and it's like girl She's betrayed you so many times. Of course, she's going to do it again. And, like, same thing with Luke. She's like, oh, Luke, my childhood love. And it's like, he's going to suck your blood. He's literally going to, yeah. literally a vampire. And I understand her being that way with Jax because I think that's interesting. I think there's, like, tension there. There's a bit of a push and pull. You want to see the best in him even if he can't pull that out. But, like, I think that's why it's, it's interesting because Evangeline and Apollo, I simply do not get. I like no. he's he's cute and like endearing in the first book, and so you do get this kind mm-hmm. of sense where you're like, okay, I see what she sees in him. There's a nice fairy tale story. He's a prince. He's a hottie. Yada da ya. He's a sweet boy. Mm-hmm. And then in this book, and I guess she just chalks it up to him being under the curse the whole time. But you just mm-hmm. really sort of fall off as a reader in any kind of interest in him. And I don't, 
And, like, I do not understand why she keeps being, like, I need to save Apollo. And, like, I trust Apollo and Apollo won't hurt me, blah, blah, blah. And it's, like, where are you where are you getting this from? They don't have enough history. I don't believe in their relationship enough to, like, justify this level of, like, delusionment. Yeah. Um, and Delusionment. I know. I As I said it, I was like, that's not the word. What is it? <laughs> Just delusion? Disillusionment? No, I think it's just delusion. Like, I'm delusional. Oh, okay. She's delulu. Um, she's delulu. That's what I should have said, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Who said we weren't going to have an intellectual conversation? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know what you mean because every time she brings up Apollo, it's like, girl, you got to move on from this. Like, why are you so hellbent on saving him? And then also her denial about her feelings for Jax was driving me a little bit crazy because, like, in the first book, it was understandable. Like, he's literally evil. And this, and so I understand why she's like, no, I, I don't have feelings for him. But then in this book, she just keeps pushing back every time they have like a really steamy moment. She's like, but no, I don't have feelings for Jax. I was just in the moment or whatever. And it's like, mm-hmm. wake up. You're in love with him. I just want to like <laughs> shake her a little bit. <laughs> well, and like at the very least at least give me something like oh i feel this way but i shouldn't because of x y and mm-hmm. z like at least give mm-hmm. me some internal discord of i'm in denial for very valid reasons because he is like mm-hmm. you know he's got some bad stuff happening and she shouldn't trust sure. him like she shouldn't trust totally. her feelings either because he's a fate like he can lure people in that's part of his shtick and also the whole scene with the hollow we know that the mirthstone is there and like that what mm-hmm. role is that playing like, i think there's a lot of elements that tell us that evangeline shouldn't be trusting her emotions but her inner monologue is not that complex her inner monologue is not no oh there are these other things at play like he's a bad dude like maybe i don't really you know, feel the way I feel isn't real or is it real? Instead, it's just sort of a blanket. I don't like him. And that's that. And you're like, okay, but like we could have had, I just think that there was like maybe space for more. Because like Stephanie Garber with their relationship has really created a lot of complexity and like a lot Mm -hmm. of back and forth of should they shouldn't they will they won't they and evangeline's inner monologue does not reflect that level of tension and complexity which i think is sometimes i would agree i think it's challenging and i think that's where i find some of jack's like comments and behaviors more compelling because i think his actions and his dialogue sort of speak to that level of complexity. Like, I feel like Jax does yeah. not want to be affectionate towards her, does not want to care about her, and, like, he's he, like, can't help it. I get that yeah. from him. I don't get that from Evangeline. Evangeline is just uh, just flatter in that aspect. Um, which, I will say, once again, like, I'm here for Jax. And so I think part of and I'm thinking yeah. about it. And you had written in your notes that Evangeline is very much so self-inserty. Like, as a reader, you can just sort of shoot yourself in. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it can be very daydreamy. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's okay for me because I love Jax so much that I'm like, you know, I'll yeah. insert myself and I'm fine with that. 
<laughs> right, like she serves her purpose. You can imagine yourself as like a cute pink-haired girl who's in love with this hot guy. So, yeah, um, yeah I I see that. I and I think it to your point. It's like, does she have to be a super complex character in order for this book to be good? I, I don't know. You can't, people listening can't see, but Sam and I are like aggressively shrugging at each other. <laughs> <laughs> I I do think though, I think part of this, part of that question is just like your own personal preference as a reader. And I mm-hmm. understand why some people would pick up this book and be like frustrated or not into it. Like I, I yeah. think that makes sense to me but at the same time it makes sense to me if you're 10,000 percent just like obsessed super into it both sides I feel like with this book make like are logical to me sometimes I read a book and I'm like I don't get what the complaint is or I don't get how you could possibly like that and with this Mm -hmm. book I think I really see both sides pretty easily um which I think Mm -hmm. is kind of agreed kind of interesting I don't think that's super common no, yeah, I feel like it's we're pretty like self-aware here about like why we love this book despite its flaws. Mm-hmm. And uh before this episode I had sent Sam a screenshot of a, a one-star review I found on Goodreads that I thought was so funny. And the one thing this person said is uh that essentially Evan- Evangeline's brain is empty and he's like uh, this girl is shocked by every obvious thing that happens to her. A dude called Killer McKillerson could come up to Evangeline and be like, I will kill you. And 10 pages later, she will go, I can't believe Killer McKillerson wanted to kill me. I'm so shocked. No one saw it coming. <laughs> and I really feel like that's a valid really sums critique. It up. But yeah, really sums it up that it's like, I get why this person didn't like the book. But also at the same time, it's like Evangeline's, you know, uh, capability to predict the future it's not necessarily what makes this book good or not no it's just like sometimes a little bit frustrating (laughs) but I always get past it well and like you said there's a lot of things in this book that are like really on the nose you maybe don't realize Mm -hmm. how on the nose they are until you've sort of gotten past that point in the plot Mm -hmm. um I think especially like with the names like we talked about like Vengeance Slaughterwood initially Mm -hmm. just sort of you're like oh that's kind of an unpleasant name but we're in this fairy tale world everybody's got kind of weird you know Mary Wood Valor blah 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 Slaughterwood doesn't seem that outrageous but then as you like get on you like get the full context of the story and everything you're like well of course they were like evil of right. course you know um and so i do think it's kind of interesting that we have some of these these really on the nose things but because it's in such a fairy tale element i at least didn't immediately register them and then when i went back and reread i was like oh <laughs> that was really in my face and i just didn't think that yeah. much of it no like petra youngblood as a name her name's so literally does- stone youth blood okay well and so that's what i i saw you wrote that and i was like does petra mean stone it does in greek and i mean i don't speak greek but in spanish piedra is stone and so it's like so like the the root there is really obvious and i super didn't 
pick up on that at all when I was reading it. So then at the end, I was like, oh, like when I was reading someone's review and they pointed that out, they're like, the one lady who died, her name was literally Youthstone. And then I looked at it and was like, oh, my God, Evangeline and I share one brain cell because because <laughs> I didn't pick up on that either. But it's really on the nose. <laughs> so funny yeah turns out we're actually more like evangeline than we than we think we are yeah she's more relatable than we're going off as if we're just like so much more intellectual than she would ever be (laughs) and maybe that's not the case anyway I, i will say i was um one thing that i was a little bit unsatisfied with with evangeline just on the subject of petra and evangeline is like we do mm-hmm. end up having um seeing evangeline kill petra in like self-defense mm-hmm. which is like probably the darkest part of this story honestly like the i was actually really surprised that she died um mm-hmm. and yeah, it came out of nowhere i know and and initially we get Evangeline like very much so worked up, very emotional, very sort of like in that space. Um, but then obviously she becomes like severely wounded because of the Archer curse and they go to the hollow and it's like so swoony mm-hmm. and then they leave the hall. And I understand why like why at the hollow we don't get much more reckoning over her having killed Petra because we know a she's in a lot of pain and b this is like a magical space where all of your problems mm-hmm. are sort of pushed to the side mm-hmm. but we end and they like go back um to wherever Valorfell oh is that what it's called wolf Valorfell oh wolf yeah. hall wolf hall she goes back yeah. to that town or whatever um and we we don't get any mention of it again and I, and I think that that also – that felt a little disingenuous to what we do know of Ava's character. Like that seemed like that should be a real prolonged impact for her. And maybe mm-hmm. we'll see that in A Curse for True Love. I don't really think so. I think it's also been just like a little bit too too far gone in a way. Um, yeah. Like she should have reckoned with it already if she was going to. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that that was kind of um, – out of place for as much as we for as little that Evangeline has personality that seemed like something that should have really impacted her you know right like she wouldn't even let Marisol die and she hates Marisol so then she kills someone with her own hands and she's I mean she sobs like in the moment but then she just like kind of moves past it it's giving Jude from the cruel prince yeah, but without any of the logic. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, that's neither here nor there because once again, Evangeline's not a very deep or complex <laughs> or tangible character and that's just another thing. Do we want to talk about Apollo? Yeah, real quick. My thing with Apollo is just that he's always cursed with something or the other. And so it's like he has not had any autonomy since... A very brief scene in the first book. So I just, like, don't understand. He's, like, this weird, like, sort of plot device character where Mm -hmm. he's, like, whatever spell he's under is always causing him to be the catalyst for some new plot line. But 
we don't understand what he wants or what his motivations might be without the curse. And so I just, every time he's there, I'm like, who is this man? What is happening? I really want to see him without the curse and see what the hell he wants. And like, I agree a thousand percent because the thing is, it's like, we don't know what Apollo's personality is. We like actively Mm -mm. don't because he's been cursed the entire time. We don't Mm -hmm. know how he feels about Evangeline. We don't Mm -hmm. know, like, do him and Jax have a real relationship? Or, like, was it all manufactured? Because it seems like... Initially, when I read Once Upon a Broken Heart, it seemed like Jax had manipulated, used magic, whatever, to get into the position that he's in as, like, Apollo's, like, friend or whatever right as a lord Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but then there's like times where Jax says like oh apollo's not who you think he is and like there's he like makes some comments about him that initially i was like oh just that's like a classic Jax. he's like a negative dude he's got lots of insults for everyone didn't think that much of it Mm -hmm. but then at the end apollo steals her memories and you're like Wait, has Apollo been up to no good this whole time? And we also have this element with his brother, Tiberius, is like... Yeah. Popping in, and he He's hard to get a read on. Yeah, and he's, like, committed to making sure that the Valerie Arch is never opened. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, what role does a... Like, does Apollo feel that way? What's in the arch that they don't ever want released? Like, is it just the Valors? Is there something else there? I don't know. And so I do think Mm -hmm. that there's Apollo, like you said, like really serves as just a device within this book. Mm -hmm. And frankly, he he's. He's playing too big of a role to just be a device. Like I like I need yeah. to know more about him. That's and, a good point. and maybe a curse for true love. I mean, I do think a curse for true love is gonna have like massive Apollo time. Sure. I think he's gonna play a, a big present role. Um, but so maybe I'll feel better once I finish that. But I do think that for all of the times he's he's talked about and he's like shaping the plot of this story, I just feel like I should actually know something about him and I know nothing about him. I have no idea if yeah. he's like a nice guy or like a manipulative guy. Is he a fate? Has he lived forever? Does he know the valor? Like so many questions. Endless questions. Yeah. We know, yeah, you're so right. Like we know literally nothing. So then at the end when he shows up and he steals her memories, I was like, first of all, since when does he have magical powers to steal people's memories? Second of all, why is he doing this? Is he cursed? Is he not? And I mean, I think that's the point. Is like, we don't know what the hell is happening at the end. So right. we're supposed to be left wondering. But I was so taken aback by everything he did at the end. I was like, what does this man want from her? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, because then we also know that when Jax goes back in time to bring Evangeline back, Honora tells him, like, time will take something of equal value from Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And as the reader, you're like, ah, what's equally valuable to him is, like, her 
memories of him like she doesn't remember him at all now and so Mm -hmm. then i'm like well does a did apollo do this because he brought her back to life like it did like a lead to b or were they happening separately is it just a you know i have questions Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. yeah no i have questions too do we want to talk about uh, your fave baddie, Chaos? <laughs> My fave baddie? I do. I do want to talk about him. And I and I swear to God, I have intellectual things to say, but I just, first of all, have to say, oh my God, so hot. I'm obsessed with him. <laughs> the scene where he's like restraining uh, Evangeline because she's a vampire. I think that scene's already just like really sexually charged in Evangeline's feelings are of course towards Jax who she can like see in the doorway and so she's like oh my God. being consumed with all these feelings for him but then at the same time he's like his weight is on top of her and she can't move and his and her, body like, is really hot when her dress like gets like, <laughs> and her dress all the way rides up. up and he's just like so calm and collected about it I think that's what's so hot to me is he's just like yeah I do this all the time like he's just yeah chill and he's like oh I, I told Jax that I would um keep you from becoming a vampire and for some reason that scene just like really did things for me I was like mm-hmm. I want to look in that man's green eyes and turn into a vampire and also <laughs> I mean he's supposed to be super handsome when he gets his uh his helmet off well and when she, she sees him, as the him stranger yeah I was gonna say when she's in the the hollow and he's like in her dreams which I think it's interesting that in her dream like when he like dream walks or whatever he appears Mm -hmm. to her as he actually is without the helm because he still has Mm -hmm. the helm on when he's like in her dreams and she just calls him the handsome stranger Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah he's he's a hottie I also think he's just really mysterious, but in a way that doesn't frustrate me because he's not the main romantic interest. Mm. So his mysteriousness is really hot because it's like he's also a tortured dude. Like we find out at the end he he was Caster Valor who died and then was brought back to life, but in doing so became a vampire and then had to have this helmet put on him so he hasn't fed in hundreds of years. So he's just like starving all the time. But, like, mm-hmm. has really good self-control. I mean, obviously the helmet is forcing him to. But he doesn't He doesn't act crazy all the time like you would think. No. Well, and I think he thinks that it's not just the helm. Like, I think he also thinks that he has really good self-control. And without the helm, he would be able to control himself like the other mm-hmm. vampires do. Um, which is why when he does kill Evangeline, I was shook I was, I was too i did not see that coming um yeah because yeah. he really is so cool so calm and chill. collected all the time yeah he's he's always so collected and um and she has so many incidences which now that i'm thinking about that this is really interesting of stephanie garber because evangeline has so many run-ins with vampires and so many close calls like the vampire risk to her is high uh like a hundred percent of the time like she's always running Mm -hmm. with the vamps and comes out totally fine and it's always like oh like a sexy scene like whatever we're not Mm -hmm. like i as the reader was not afraid of evangeline being bitten by a vampire past the first book right i was i felt confident that she like it's not a big deal and so for her then 
for that to be how she dies, I think also was really shocking. And I think kind of plays into maybe Evangeline's own, um, I'm going to say this word wrong. Naivety. Naivety. Thank you. I can always say naive. It's the, the, the itty that loses me, but. Well, and it's um, spelled weird. Naivety. Because <laughs> in, in like going in when he like takes the helm off, she's like unfazed. She doesn't think it's going to be an issue. She's like, yeah, Jack's your dramatic, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's because she's had so many of these incidences with him and with mm-hmm. um, people of the vampire sort and yada yada and she doesn't feel afraid of them and that ends up being her her fatal flaw Um, Mm -hmm. which i think was an interesting choice on stephanie garber's part and i will say just like another thing that stephanie garber mentioned in an interview is like she has been she has been setting out to write a vampire like a book with vampires since caraval like she Oh, in Caraval, really? like tried to do vampires, and her like editor was like, "No, there's way too much happening here. This this is too much." And so when she wrote this book, she was like, "She was like, yeah, I intentionally was trying to set up and like figure out how I could weave vampires into this because she really wanted like, like a vampire storyline." And I just think that's really, I think that's really entertaining to me. I love that. I also just love that her vampires are hot. Literally. Like, they're not, yeah. like Jax is described as being cold. And Chaos is, like, his whole body is heat. Which I think is maybe another reason why I'm so into him. Because the, the cold thing doesn't do it for me. I don't want well, someone to be cold. Well, that's interesting that you say that. Because in Twilight, it's the opposite. Where the vampires yeah. are really cold. And I will yeah. say that's a big allure of the werewolves for me is that they're so yeah. warm. And they're like that hot. whole thing in Eclipse where she like has to snuggle with Jacob because Edward is like ice. Mm-hmm. I was like, ooh. Yeah. And so there's there's something to be said about a a temperature hot man. <laughs> the body heat element. The no, body it's so heat, true. that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> but then also chaos is a compelling character to me and here's where like the semi-intelligent thoughts will come in is that his relationship with Jax is really interesting to me like I -hmm. I hope that we get more into it in the next book because clearly they have a lot of history they were besties back in the days of the Marywood three and then um he died and then all this shit happened but then Jax and him seem to have been like loyal to each other and sort of working together towards Mm -hmm. like Maybe they have different goals, but their goals are close enough that they're almost in common. And so they, like, kind of work together, but they're also kind of wary of each other. Mm-hmm. And I just want to know more about the history that led them to that point. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Because I think their dynamic, it's very believable that they are childhood friends in the mm-hmm. sense that it's like, okay, we're not necessarily friends now. But when push comes to shove, we have all of this history and we know things about each other that no other living person knows about one another. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. creates a bond that is difficult yeah. to like ignore and avoid. And like especially because they're all a gazillion years old 
I think even with La La, you get this element of no one living understands me and like knows me the way that these handful of people do. Mm -hmm. And so sort of by de facto, those people become really like essentially family, even though it's like a very contentious, not necessarily loving relationship. It's just like Mm -hmm. there's no one else in the world who's like me. And so these people just like there's a loyalty there that's just inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And it's like how much of that loyalty is because of that, all that shared history and mm-hmm. how much of it is because they actually like each other and care about each other. Right. We don't know. Because we don't really know. I think going back to a little bit about what was missing about Jax is like, we just don't know how he really feels about a lot of the stuff that mm-hmm. happened in his backstory. Like when Castor died, how was he feeling? I mean, maybe we can... In- we can infer that he was upset because that was his mm-hmm. bestie but like we don't really know what their friendship dynamic was back then so so i don't know like and how did he feel when he saw chaos become a monster i don't know and so the, there's just all this like mystery about what these two men feel that it yeah. makes them really compelling and also i want chaos to lay on top of me <laughs> Amen, amen. (laughs) Moving on, do we have any other characters we want to talk about? I mean, I had written down Lala, but I don't have much to say besides there was one interesting reveal, which is that she always breaks off her engagements. Yes. she's pining after a long-lost lover. Yes, and I think her long-lost lover is the third guy in the Marywood 3, right? Yeah. Which so we there's still like, don't really know what the deal is with him. There's like additional history there because it's like, okay, whatever changed Jax, whatever made Caster into chaos with the helm, and then whatever took away her lover, are mm-hmm. they all, like, was it all the Slaughterwood incident? Yeah. Or was there more going on? Yeah. So I'm just I'm saying Stephanie Garber has a lot of ground to cover. Oh in this wait wait next wait wait wait! If she's gonna tie up all these questions that we have. So one thing that we do know, though, it took me a little bit to find the page, but um, when they are in the hollow, Evangeline looks through uh, Aurora Valor's um, journal diary, and in it, mm-hmm. she does say she's um, she's talking about. Uh, lyric Marywood here. She says, Lala keeps telling me that I should just marry vengeance, but I don't think she's ever really liked me. I don't think she believes I'm good enough for her brother, which is fine, as I don't think she's good enough for my brother. And so we know there from that that Lala's brother is Lyric Marywood, who was killed by vengeance mm-hmm. Slaughterwood. And we also know that Lala is the unwed bride because one of the Valor brothers was her fiancé who she was never able to marry. Um, and she okay. for. And all the Valors are, like, in an eternal sleep inside the arch, right? So Lala's long-lost love technically is still alive. Yes. That's my understanding, at least. Um, I suppose it doesn't describe, because when Evangeline goes into the Valor... She sees the mom and she sees Aurora. And I don't think she really describes anyone else, but I guess 
maybe I'm assuming that they're all there. It was then that she noticed the gold circlet crowning the head of the petite woman beside Aurora. The woman's skin was a dark shade of olive. She must have been Aurora's mother. Oh, the man lying beside Honora looked more battle-worn than handsome. He also had a crown on his head, and Evangeline imagined he must have been Wolfric Valor. The family on the floor was the Valors. Ah, yes. Okay. So I'm assuming the whole family is there. Mm-hmm. She just didn't mention any of the brothers because they're not important at this moment. But I imagine we'll see something happen in the next book between Lala and... I hope so. Her long lost love. Um, One other thing that I wanted to mention was at the beginning of Aurora Valor's um, journal, she says, she like has this little warning and she's like, don't read this. I've cursed it. And anybody who reads it will die. And that includes you, Caster. And Evangeline is like, oh, that's... um, like a child this is this feels really juvenile the curse is like definitely not real it's a joke blah 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 but we do know that evangeline dies shortly thereafter um Mm -hmm. and we also know that castor also dies semi shortly after aurora writes this particular entry which raises the question Mm. of um did aurora curse them for real curse them for real yeah Okay, so I thought I maybe made this up. It does not appear that I did. I don't know where in the book, but at some point in this book or in the previous one, there is a mention that Lysander, his power has something to do with memories. Lysander Valor. Um, Though nobody knows exactly what. Yeah, so it says, Dane was some sort of, this is in, this is page 130 of the ballad of never after it says dane was some sort of shifter and lysander had a gift that involved memories and so this particular i'm on a reddit thread now and this person thinks that dane was the sort of shifter which would be lala's dragon love because she we know that she was like in love with a dragon and then lysander Apollo is either Lysander himself or a descendant, some kind of relation there. Okay. No, that's interesting because we don't know anything about Apollo. Like, we don't know who his parents are, right? We Mm -hmm. just, he's just like there and we don't know why he's the prince. So, when it is that tracks, it is interesting because this person brings up in Once Upon a Broken Heart. Um, when Evangeline meets with Scarlet and Tello, she asks them if they know anything about Apollo and the both, both sisters are like, oh yeah, for sure. But then they can't remember anything specific about him. And it says neither sister could remember a thing about Prince Apollo, Acadian or his family. And at first they just chalk it up to the mystery of like the magnificent North, you know, you can't tell stories outside. But yeah. this is thinking that maybe it's something a little bit more. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So I think there's a lot of curses and a lot of magic at play here. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you had said in the first book about how you really liked how Stephanie Garber had created this world where like the stories were unreliable. Mm-hmm. That persists in this book. Yeah. And so I wonder if in the next book we will 
get answers to all of these stories. We did get an answer as to what's inside the Valerie Arch, but we don't know why the family's just in there asleep. Right, because there's this whole thing that the whatever's inside the Valerie Arch, like, is it's a prison to lock away, like, the greatest danger. But then the other story is that it holds, like, the Valor's greatest treasure. And so mm-hmm. knowing that the Valors themselves are locked inside of it begs the question of is it – are they, the like, the world's greatest threat or, like, the greatest treasure? TBD. Okay. Well, I like that. I liked – I will say I liked the ending. Like, it was a cliffhanger, but it was a pretty compelling one because it mm-hmm. was just, like – Everything came out of nowhere, and I was like, well, now what the hell is happening? And uh, it wasn't predictable in any way. I really liked how it was, like, two endings. Like, it ends with Evangeline dying, but then Jax reverses it, and then, like, we get another ending. Mm-hmm. And Evangeline's not aware of it. So I'm just – it leaves a lot set up for the next book. Uh, what's Evangeline going to be like when she has no memory of Jax? What's Jax going to do about that? I will say. I think he's going to be really upset. (laughs) So I have no idea because on one hand, I think he's going to be really upset. But on the other hand, I think he's going to be like, oh, the Valerie Arch was going to take something from me. It, it, the Arch took her memories and Mm -hmm. she's better off without me. And Mm -hmm. so I think that he definitely could. He'll maybe be like, ignoring her and be like i'm gonna leave her be because that she's like potentially safer happier yada yada um yeah and because we know that he like tries to push her away at the end like he's like he's like knows that he is like a risk for her and he cares about her and so he doesn't want her around and um Mm -hmm. i'm curious if he'll feel that way finding out that she doesn't have her memories and it's not until he finds out that her memories have been taken by Apollo and there's like something nefarious going on that, and it's not just like the side effect of the arch that then he'll get involved. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know either. Cause I mean, it, it's clear that if he's the archer, he has some kind of curse that's probably going to draw mm-hmm. him to her until she's dead. So my guess is that he's going to try and like, I don't know, avoid her and be like, oh, this is better. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to be able to. Can't do it. And going back to the first book, when you had said, when we pointed out that foreshadowing about Jack's being her greatest heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Now that hasn't happened yet. So what's going to happen there? I don't know. I don't know. Because there's another part in this book where she mentions, she describes Jack's as looking like eternal heartbreak. So it's definitely still a theme mm-hmm. that's going on. I will say, do you want to know one thing that's um, – so s- some of the A Curse for True Love books were put out on shelves before the official release date, which is actually really unfortunate because some backstory – Stephanie Garber intentionally did not send out any arcs or read-aheads for A Curse for True Love. Oh. Specifically because she didn't want any spoilers. She wanted the readers to, like, find everything out as they were reading it and not because mm-hmm. reviewers had posted a whole bunch of stuff ahead of time. Um, mm-hmm. But some books stores started putting the book out early. 
um, which is so unfortunate. It's fine. But people have posted the inside images of the covers and the inside image of the cover on at the beginning is clearly Evangeline and Apollo in like a room. It's like a very romantic sort of scene. And then uh-huh. the picture in the back of the book, at the back cover, this is inside cover, by the way, uh, is Evangeline and Jack's like walking towards what appears to be the hollow. And so a lot of people think that it's going to start, the first half is a love story with Apollo and the second half is a love story with Jax. That's what people think based off the covers. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, I can't wait. I'm glad this is we're like a week away. <laughs> I know. So. We're we're like 2 days away actually. Comes out in Tuesday. Yeah, actually. It comes out. Oh my gosh, yeah. We're recording this on the 22nd. So it Oh, it comes out literally the day this episode is posting. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. Sick. Sick, sick, sick. Um All right, so we will be reviewing that yes. very soon. I will be thrilled. Um one thing I just wanted to touch on really really quick is can we just talk about the as you talked about there's two separate endings first we have evangeline dying and then we have this little interlude that's told in Mm -hmm. um an independent like third person i'm just obsessed with like um where it says uh jacks of the hollow warned the queen those arch stones can only be used once to go one time to go back. They were not created for infinite trips to the past. I know, Jax growled. I'm going to go back and stop your son from killing her. The queen's face fell. For a moment, she looked as old as the years she'd spent lying in a suspended state. That is not a small mistake to fix. If you do this, time will take something equally valuable from you. The fate gave the queen a look more vicious than any curse. There is nothing of equal value to me. And then you turn the page and Evangeline is alive. Yeah, that was so good. That's really like when we get the curtain pulled back on how Jax feels about Evangeline. Like it's pretty obvious the whole book, but it's nice to see him finally admit it out loud. I know. And then he's like a, then he's just like a dick to Evangeline. I know, which is sad and hard to read, but it's like, you know why. But yeah, I am incredibly excited for A Curse for True Love and I can't wait to read it and I can't wait to discuss it and I'm really glad that you've read this book because I had a lot of pent up emotion about it. Yes. Yeah, and there's not a lot of content about it. No. Some of our favorite podcasts have not covered this and so like I went to listen to podcasts about it and I couldn't find any Mm-mm. thing that i wanted to listen to i do think so, there is something to be said that it's like geared towards a younger audience like it reads young we've talked yeah. about that and it's also i think <laughs> i think these days there's a lot of like if it's marketed as being like a romance or an enemies to lovers people want like a decent amount of spice and that mm-hmm. this is not there's no spice no and i don't anticipate there ever will be um no and so i see that it is maybe not the fit for some of the demographic that normally reads this sort of stuff. But yeah, can't wait. Yeah. Do you have a final rating? Has your rating changed at all? Oh my God. Um, no, I think I'm still at an eight. I think 
I've had a long time to think about this book and yeah it continues to be an eight for me despite you know some of the the more critical elements that we went over I think it it still holds for me I think mine goes up to a 7.5 just because like we've done a little bit more discussion about like the purpose behind this book and I really feel like it served the intended purpose the only thing is I feel like this like, I feel like the first book prompted a little bit more discussion about, like, we talked about earlier, like, the the discussion about fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there wasn't really as much of that in this book. It, no. I feel like it was a slower pace. We got a lot more, like, steamy, you know, sexual tension scenes, which were really well done and really brought it up for me. But it just maybe didn't have the same impact on me that the first one had. Mm-hmm. It had a different impact, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree. I can see that. I think that that's... It's just like all the loose ends that were left were unfortunately a little bit of a negative for me, even though I know that that, that, that was on purpose. So I'm optimistic that A Curse for True Love will bring will be the best one in the series. Because this is, you know, a second book. And a lot of times the second book is not the best one. Yeah, this one, the second book, though, is the... This is the highest rated of Stephanie Garber's all of her books ever written. I mean, I get it. I get why. It had me in a chokehold. Seems to have everyone else in a chokehold. It's just like such a fun read packed with so much mm-hmm. tension that yeah. you just like don't see these days because everyone wants to jump to Insta Love Spice. Tension. Tension. Okay. Yeah. We love to see it. All okay. right. Well, come back uh, every Tuesday for new episodes we will shortly be reviewing a curse for true love we will also be reviewing uh 1989 taylor's version very soon because that drops later this week so exciting stuff come back follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss any new episodes you can find us if you want to get in touch with us um check our show notes for our instagram goodreads and email and we will talk to you soon thanks for listening Bye. bye